Welcome, everyone, to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Now, Allison, do you have an extra $300 to spare? I actually just, I missed the $300 moment to give Mattel money for the American Girl Barbie. I missed it. Okay. I mean, are you sad about that? Like, let's get into this. For people who are unaware, in the past week or so, Mattel launched a commemorative Barbie-themed American Girl doll who looks like the classic original Barbie. If you saw the Barbie movie, this is the Barbie, the massive Margot Robbie who appears at the beginning in the montage. Yes. I did not, I, so... I chose to not spend money on this. I also was sort of watching to see what people said. I'm not really a collector for collecting's sake. I think it was a smart move if you are a collector who flips or turns things over. I'm more of an instant gratification, and you're not going to get this doll until possibly November 24, which is too far for me. I feel that. And as Carrie Fisher once said, instant gratification can't come soon enough. Like, I feel that in my bones sometimes. I was not tempted by this. And more than that, I'm actually offended that they did this. What do you not like about it? Because I I think it is kind of a a shocking thing knowing that this was marketed as the anti-Barbie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so on one level, we all know, or if you know, if you've read our book, Hint, Hint, Dolls of Our Lives, or We Can't Quit American Girl, a great stocking stuffer, check it out, or holiday gift. Um, You know, Pleasant was motivated to create American Girl as a reaction against dolls like Barbie, explicitly Barbie, um, that she believed were asking girls to grow up too soon. And as we learned on our Patreon episode where we read a history of Ruth, what's her last, I never remember her last name. Handler. Handler, who created Barbie, you know, Barbie is based on actually like a German doll that was sold at originally truck truck stops targeted towards men, not as a sex doll, but as something that was like for men to ogle. And if you look up the original doll, it's very similar to this original Barbie that American Girl has just released. And, you know, to the point that Ruth had to buy the rights to that doll because it was such a close match. And to me, the optics of that, like everything has a history and to to invite American Girl to replicate that Barbie in particular, I think is really a strange choice. And I know that, you know, Pleasant selling to Mattel to her was not a betrayal because it was about memory making and putting girls at the center of the story. And maybe she sort of got past that. But I just think it's a weird it's a step back. And if you were going to do a Barbie collab, why not pick one of the multi-hyphenate professional Barbies or something that would put women at the center of the story or like inspire girls and boys and any how any person to, you know, want to interact with Barbie in a positive way that's not just like a girl in a bathing suit? I don't think that there's any shortage of new and good ideas out in the world, but I think a lot of people are very averse to risk-taking. And so, Mm -hmm. again, we've talked about this, but the response to the Barbie movie doing so well being now there should be a Ken movie and now that there should be 18 Hot Wheels movies, Mm -hmm. I think kind of takes the wrong 
note or the wrong lesson from these things, right? That instead of saying, well, when we put a really talented team together and we give them some latitude, they can tell an interesting story. I think that's part of why I've been turned off by a lot of movies. I don't like, you know, certain kinds of series that seem to just like fold in on themselves. And I think a lot of the collabs this year have felt very kind of like we're running in the same circle, right? Like the same toy yeah. aisle over and over. We're kind of folding over ourselves. I love Barbie. I bought my mom one of those types of Barbies because she didn't have her originals. I think that original style of Barbie is very cute. I'm a little hung up on the painted toenails because I just personally can't get past that as someone who like has American girl feet. That is like hard for me to, to take. But <laughs> I support people who like it. I think that it will be a cute addition to collections. I think it is a pin in a timeline of baffling collabs and choices. Like this was also right on the heels one way or the other with the NFL jerseys. And it was like, we're just throwing anything There's that already just, exists. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a wild time. Like, I'm kind of of two minds, which is like the world is a hellscape at the moment. Like, we batch recorded a lot of episodes before our book came out prior to the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is ongoing and is just really heart-wrenching. And so many other, like, really rough things going on in the world. And so if this brings you joy in this moment, like, God bless, go for it. Like, don't let me stop you. But at the same time, I think it invites some questions about, like, nostalgia culture, of which, like, our book and our show are, are definitely a part. But to me, like, good nostalgia projects are ones that actually interrogate, like, what nostalgia is doing for you and has a creative element. So, like, come up with a new interpretation of like what nostalgia is doing for you in the present. Why are you looking back and what is that doing for you right now? And to just sell something from the 50s with no thought to what that choice to bring it to 2023 is going to do for like girls with no memory of that. Like how are you reinscribing maybe the problematic values of that Barbie today while maybe erasing the positive, you know, revisions of what American Girl was trying to do in the 80s? I just think it's kind of like you're saying it has it feels like it had as much thought as like the NFL jersey collab. And that's just like kind of puzzling to me. What's interesting. So we get asked the question a lot, right? You know, why are these things so expensive? And I do defend to a large degree that these are quality heirloom products, a lot of them. Right. And there are reasons why people were willing to scrimp and save or borrow them from the library or find any kind of possible way to make a meaningful you know, connection to these products. I'm curious why these would be almost triple the price of other dolls right. other than the fact that they are choosing to make them rare. Right. Like right. that that speaks to maybe a different kind of mission than I think people have been cautious and careful about embracing the Claudie line and wanting more historical pieces. I think overall there's been a lot of attention and care given to what's been released around her and the books written by Britt Bennett. And it's such a kind of interesting sideways turn to say, but this is $300 and a small number of people will get it and that's it. Like that doesn't yeah. seem congruous to me, but I don't run a multi-billion dollar company, surprisingly. Well, not yet. I mean, who knows what's in your future? But yeah, I I agree. And I feel like this is not a product aimed at kids. And it's for collectors. It's for like prestige culture. Like, I just don't get it. This is a huge miss for me. 
And I don't know, I would love to like be in their planning meetings, like what's going on with their concepts? Like, I would just love to know what's motivating them besides money. Maybe it's just money. I don't know. But and people want it. And I think it will be, you know, a beautiful thing for a lot of people's collections. But I do think it absolutely invites questions, right? If you are a thing that is established to be different from something else and then you're kind of cosplaying as that thing. I don't think it's meant to be a big cosmic wink. I, I think it signals something has changed pretty dramatically. And you know yeah. that we're not anti-Barbie. We're, there's no, there's nothing here that we are not anti-Barbie. But these are products that were specifically designed to be different from that. Right, yeah. It's collapsing the age difference, which is actually meaningful between Barbie, the world of Barbie and American Girl. And I think that that's a really interesting erasure and the fact that it's not commented on is interesting by the brand yeah i'll be interested to see like what happens with this is this just like a one-off thing is like what's going to come next i don't know i just think there's a million other things they could do that are not this and i'm more interested in things that are new and not like you know these weird throwbacks that don't seem to have any meaning besides making money for mattel so yeah i feel like julie's julie's you know various activist streaks have rubbed off on you yes they have and also i guess like my criticism of nostalgic or like my you know side eye at nostalgia culture as we'll get into like the 70s was a time when people were romanticizing the 50s for a variety of reasons um which the peek into the past on book six here gets into but um and we can talk about that but this is a similar nostalgia for something in the 50s and i think it's always a good idea to ask like what's going on when people invoke a theoretically like air quotes simpler time and julie has like given me that like she has like rate turned up the volume on that point in my brain so thank you to julie you know we're we're like not done with julie by any means but we are here to talk about the last julie book um before we do so like is there any other pop culture i know you're getting over cold Anything you've watched helped you feel better? Yeah, I obviously, I sound amazing. No. Uh, So I went from barely using my TV to like, she's put in work this week. Like if I had a, like a screen time report, she'd be like, wow, like something has changed. I really enjoyed the film May, December. And I agree with like the general consensus that it's a really weird thing to have been put out and marketed by Netflix because they got criticized rightfully for making basically thirst trap advertisements of a certain character. This is a a sort of retelling of the dynamic between uh, Billy Falau and Mary Kay Letourneau and kind of imagines an actor in the form of Natalie Portman. If an actor dropped in on their lives when uh, in this story, there are three children, uh, a boy and two girls. And in real life, that couple had uh, two girls who are now grown women and kind of imagines like on the cusp of their last children graduating high school, if an actor dropped in on their lives and studied them for the role of playing the Mary Kay Letourneau type person in a TV movie, like what would that experience be like? And it's one of the better performances sets that I've seen like Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman are amazing and the whole rest of the cast make them look like base actors which I think is oh, wow extremely impressive so and I think it's a very kind of subtle commentary with also a very 
funny if you liked get out that that's kind of like this with some like very uncanny moments of levity like a a very strange moment early on around barbecuing that i don't want to ruin if you don't turn it off after that this movie is for you okay i mean i can't wait to see it it's a todd oldham movie right and you know we were speaking of barbie and i still think the best karen carpenter biopic ever is his barbie his like karen carpenter movie that he made with barbies which is on youtube i think Um, Have you ever seen that? I have. And I will say this film is extremely strange. And Netflix chose really Mm -hmm. strange moments to advertise the film in a way that was both like bizarrely misleading and like misses the entire plot of really trying to show like the cost of you're watching a young man who's now become a man who still like stands and slouches like a teenager look at his own children who have this tremendous vulnerability and it's like he's realizing fully for the first time that he was part of something that was abusive and and it's a really like very very subtle commentary with natalie portman like so i i highly recommend it and it's different it's different from a lifetime tv movie like i'm not shading those but this is doing something other than that interesting hmm Wow. All right. I'll have to check that out. I've been, I want to give a shout out to our Patreon community. We do watch alongs on there and we just did a watch along of Yentl last week and I'm reading Barbara Streisand's memoir right now, which I probably will be for a long time. I'm reading other stuff too, but it's quite long, but it's basically like your great aunt who pulls you to the side at Thanksgiving is like, I want to tell you some stuff. And there's like no filter, like, you know, they're just talking and you're like, wow, let me pull up a chair because this is wild. And there's no editing. It's very all over the place, but I I think in a way that works for her, it's, it feels very conversational. I wonder what listening to the audiobook is like, because I think that would actually be fun. But I'm not where the, she talked about Yentl. I really tried to get there. But Yentl is like, have you seen Yentl? I have not. And I sadly missed our group watch. So I definitely missed out. It was highly recommend. I was like freaking out the whole time. I didn't, I purposely didn't look. I knew sort of what the plot was. I know that she plays a woman who really wanted to go to school in Eastern Europe in the early 20th century. And basically like after her dad dies, she like leaves town and rebrands as a man so she can go to yeshiva. And she weirdly befriends slash falls in love with Mandy Patinkin. And like, there's a lot of like heat between them, but then Mandy Patinkin's in love with another woman. And like, it goes from there, but the music is very, like her singing is just like, I did not fully appreciate how talented she is. I knew it, but I didn't really know it. And I've been watching, when I go down a rabbit hole, like I'm watching concerts on YouTube. I'm listening to her album. She has a great album with Barry Gibb called Guilty from the seventies, which is so good. I feel like Julie would like it actually, but you know, so I'm just, I'm down a rabbit, a Barbara Streisand rabbit hole can't get enough and that's really taken over my life. I kind of feel like I need to go rewatch The Mirror Has Two Faces. Like I'm really on the path right now. I feel like there was definitely Barbara Streisand playing at Glad Rags. There was Barbara Streisand playing at Glad Rags. And you know that like, so one of the things you learn about Barbara in her book is that she originally bought much of her clothing at vintage stores and she was wearing Outfits that probably would have made sense in the world of Yentl, like early 20th century stuff. Like she loved a high collar dress and she would find like shoes from the early 1900s and wear those on stage at like these supper clubs where she started as a singer. 
And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm thinking like, if this woman was, and she did play a club in San Francisco early in her career. And I'm like, what if she dipped into glad rags and was like, love what I'm seeing here? I think Julie's mom would be very supportive. 100%, 100%. And you know, they, maybe they, their eyes would have met at a President Carter, Jimmy Carter fundraiser, Barbara Streisand, longtime Democratic Party fundraiser. And they become like really good friends and they like share tips on where to find like cool vintage clothes. I think there's a chance that Julie ends up in L.A. and she and Barbara hobnob at events at USC together. I think that's real. Or UCLA, where apparently she's founded her own center recently on truth. So, yeah, lots there. I mean, I feel like Julie would be like, I don't know what she wants to do professionally, Julie. Like maybe the environment is her calling. So maybe they wouldn't cross paths. But maybe like to make ends meet, she's like, I'll be an assistant on the set of, you know, whatever Yentl. in the 70s. No, she's, Yentl, she's too The young. way we were, the way we were, maybe. I think the way we were would work. I, I have sort of like a Julie quiz for you if you're ready for that, but only let's I mean, do it. We're never ready to move past Barbara, but I will for the sake of, you know, the show. But, you know, just emotionally, I'm still there, but I respect it. So Megan McDonald has given us this really complicated character in the form of Julie. And we've at long last arrived at changes for Julie. But I want to give you a rundown of what I'll call like roles or callings that Julie has pursued. And I'd like you to pick the one that you find most interesting. We okay. have Julie, the civil rights lawyer, journalist, mm -hmm. anthropologist, environmentalist. I'm going to call this pioneer slash cowgirl slash cultural heritage tourist or okay. Julie, the disability rights advocate. Um, I'm going to go with Julie, the journalist, because I think, you know, it's a way that could encompass all these other roles, like writing stories about it. But, um, you know, I don't know. That's my two cents. What about you? I think I really enjoyed Julie, the environmentalist. I think that book was kind of fun and had some moments in levity that we didn't always get with Julie elsewhere. Um, I think my most baffling Julie was book five. I, th I think like shoehorning in the the bicentennial and choosing to put Julie somewhere else, I think was probably good for the Valley Forge Tourism Bureau. Otherwise, like it didn't really yes. work for me, but I, I found that book a lot of fun. Like I'm not going to hate on that book, but I don't know that that Julie was as compelling to me as others. I think she would also be a great basketball coach because oh, true. I think she's very good like in this book, as we'll get into, she's very, I think, good at like connecting with other people or trying to encourage sometimes in misguided ways, other people and herself to like specific goals that sometimes vary widely. I'm still thinking about her holding that eagle head puppet, feeding the baby eagle, like that has scarred me for life. So I can't say environmental activist, though we definitely need that. But yeah, I mean, I think she'd be a great coach as well. I think changes for Julie is maybe remarkable to me because I don't really feel like this is a traditional changes book. I feel like every book has been Julie learns a lesson. I think that's definitely true. Or Julie saves the day. Like there has been a lot of saves the day energy to this whole series and no shade to that. She has a lot to do. The 70s had a lot of issues like her own times and she had a lot to say. Um, it seems like activism is sort of a through line in her books. So that's like definitely a big part of probably who she becomes as an adult. 
Yeah. Do we want to do kind of a, a quick recap of the changes? There Please are many. Please do. Get into it. Let's get into it. So this book makes a direct reference to Nothing's Fair in fifth grade, which I loved. Um, Julie is in fifth grade and in trouble. She was only helping her friend Joy, who is deaf, but her teacher doesn't care. After serving time in detention, Julie sets out to change the system. To do that, she'll have to win the election for student body president, running against the most popular boy in school. As the election heats up, Julie tries to get kids to listen to her ideas. When she realizes that other kids don't like Joy, her choice for vice president, she considers dropping out. But the last thing she wants to do is hurt Joy's feelings or lose her as a friend. Like we're we're finally coming full circle in a sense with this changes book that started with, in my mind, a reference to Watergate that I've still not recovered from, which is like Hank, the Vietnam vet, quoting Nixon as an advice, as a source of like good advice. And now we have Julie herself not rigging an election, but certainly trying to win one. Yeah. Instead of having a passing interest in Gerald Ford or Jimmy Carter, she kind of takes democracy into her own hands. And there's really like two big things happening in this book. And this book is like a very self-contained timeline. There's her developing friendship with Joy, who is deaf, and this sudden desire to overhaul her version of the carceral state, which is their current detention system, which has adversely impacted her and Joy, and her wanting to be class president to undo that. Like, that's basically where this book goes. And if you're Mm -hmm. confused, that's okay. Like, I think... We are also confused. I think that's fair to say. I think it's like, with Julie, there's a lot of, like, you think you know what she cares about the most and then like you read the next book and you're like wow i didn't know you also care about the environment or like wow i didn't know you also care about celebrating the bicentennial and now i'm in a place of like i didn't know you were like a carceral state queen like i didn't she like clear like literally julie gets detention one time and she's like you know what that's it i've seen enough i'm taking to the streets taking to the ballot box and i'm gonna change this What's interesting as a a central conflict in the book, book one gives us this very sharp sense of Julie as a person who like has literally heard of Title IX once and then pursues that to ensure that she has, you know, proper access to sporting and like everything that she needs to be a full participant as a girl in middle school sports. What's so different about this book is Julie doesn't have like a legal maneuver with her friend Joy, right? Like there's minimal to non-existent support in the public school system or in the courts for students with disabilities. And so instead she attacks detention. It's like a very interesting kind of like way to present the whole arc of this series from Julie being like, I'm a person with rights to by the end saying like, I'm a person with rights and this other person, Joy, is still being treated as a second class citizen and I can't fix that, but I can fix detention. Yes. And it's, it's a weird, I think it's an important frame, like choice of plot point, because I do think like while things are not changing for Joy, like are we supposed to imply 
like the idea act of 1975 like what year is it in the in book six is are we in 70 we're in 76 right because it's post bicentennial we are in the fall of 1976 and so we've covered several years with julie right she's one of those characters like samantha that we actually cover more time than we do with others but that's what confuses me about the timeline of this of all the books frankly is because so when we when the book begins, like we're in class with Julie and we meet Joy, um, a deaf student with whom Julie's friends and they're like passing notes and mainly they pass notes. This was like a stunning scene to me for to open the book with. But Julie writes a note to Joy because Joy is struggling to read the lips of the teacher like she couldn't under, literally understand something the teacher said. So Julie writes it down and passes it to her. And the teacher sees it and calls them both out. And Julie's like, but it's because she couldn't understand you. I'm like literally helping her understand. And rather than be like, oh, okay. And like working with Joy privately to be like, I'm going to work to make sure I don't turn my back to the board or like, you know, whatever might help as like an, a basic accommodation. Instead, she's like, you know the rules. Like you're both going down for detention. But what's, and the book goes from there. But basically what's weird to me is like the, it was called the All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, which was supposed to actually ensure that children with various handicaps or disabilities could be educated in public school systems, which was not guaranteed prior to this. And that took many different forms, but like we're a year into that. And it just feels like that has not reached along with just like basic compassion, like this teacher or the school. No, and I think maybe you're supposed to, like as an adult reader at least, like see a profound difference between the almost like immediate implementation of Title IX, right? At least in some situations, I'm not saying globally. The fact that it's going to be almost two more decades before the Americans with Disabilities Act, I don't think I knew how protracted that timeline was until I read Judy Human's autobiography, And Mm -hmm. she talks about how through the 60s and most of the 70s, and I'm sure in some places even further, the basic response was to put any children with any kind of difference at all, like whatever was flagged as a difference in special education. And so I think what you're seeing that's pretty shocking is the fact that Joy is able to read lips and Joy is able to verbally communicate in a way that students understand. So she's kept in the classroom, but she's openly mocked by adults, by children in this book. And it's only Julie who takes the initiative to get a sign language book. There's no one at the school who has any kind of way. The whole onus of communication is on Joy. That seems like very fitting with what Judy Human describes as like through the 70s, at least the MO. Yeah, uh, it is shocking to read this and to know that it's like a very historically accurate portrayal of what people with disabilities dealt with on a day-to-day basis. And also just the ways that like other forms of laws were used to police disabled people. Like in Judy's case, like fire laws were often used to keep her out of school. Like she had to, her parents really advocated for her as well. And like oftentimes because she was in a wheelchair, they'd be like, well, you can't come to school because it's a like you couldn't leave the building if it was on fire. And we would have to like change the school to like apply fire code. So like, that's it. And that happens to her, like, I think multiple times in her life, like when she goes to college or like, you can't live in the dorm because it's not to code. Like if there was a fire, you couldn't get out. 
And it's just crazy to think like how people who want to, who don't want to accommodate disabled people, like will literally use laws to other kinds of laws to limit disabled people's access to rights. There's so many really brilliant and subtle moments in this book where you're able to catch on to why there's a gap in communication with Joy. One of, I think, the more interesting moments is like Julie is so frustrated and she thinks she's, you know, she's trying so hard, right? And she, her heart is in the right place. One of the jobs that she gives Joy when they choose to run for office is she asks her to hold up their signs, which means yes. that she's silencing. And this is where I think like showing like the naivete of her being a child in a, in a very realistic way. And Joy gets extremely frustrated and she's not holding the sign correctly. And Julie reprimands her on page 44. And part of the conversation they're not having is that by asking her to do that, um, the description is Joy stood stiffly, barely holding up the poster. She's barely holding up the poster because you're silencing her. And and it's so right. not an intentional thing or a thing that she's aware of. But I thought that was like that with pairing how many times people turn their back. And yes. that effectively makes it so that Joy can't communicate with them at all was just so telling, I think. Yeah. And I, I just felt like this is such an important plot line, like even for like, and especially because of those awkward moments where Julie is like clearly feeling her way like into how to be in a like a compassionate friend and not be someone who like diminishes joy or like infantilizes her. All the things that happen with people with disabilities or health issues, like from people who are well-intentioned, but just like don't like are, are afraid to have uncomfortable conversations and ultimately like that's sort of what needs to happen here what did you think of julie's choice to run for office like to go back to the beginning like they're in the classroom they're learning about lewis and clark the moment that like sparks a lot of this the catalyst is joy not knowing the word sacagawea or not being able to read that on the right. lips of the teacher so they pass the note this leads julie to say like I need to run for office. Do you think that they're trying to make a case that like because she's a girl of the early to mid 70s, like she feels specifically empowered to do that? They don't use the F word, obviously, but we're not using the F obviously. word. How dare we? We will never use that word. Yeah, I think that's partly sort of what's going on. It's like, hey, girl, like you want to play basketball? You can do it. You want to play? You want to be president? Um, we're all still waiting on that. But like, you know, you can dream big. I also think it's a way of her thinking of like, how can she take action? Like there's not it's not enough for her to like change her own thinking about something and, you know, behave her behavior changing accordingly. It's like she has to take some bigger action in her community. So it seems like this is the path. But, you know, I always feel like people who say they want to run for president, it's like a revelation in the DSM of like, you're a sociopath. Like, that's just my personal feeling, which is like why when I was in sixth grade, I was voted most likely to be president. I was like, this is not the endorsement that I want, because actually what I'm feeling is like my peers are saying you might be a sociopath. OK, what's really hard in this book is her opponent is offering things that he clearly can't follow through on, but they're extremely Oof. compelling. He's offering pizza parties. He's offering time pizza off. on Friday. Like he's literally like, I will guarantee that I will have pizza available for everyone as hot lunch option on Fridays, which like that is extremely compelling. But that was making me laugh so hard because Catholic. School. I don't know what you're. 
yeah, exactly. Catholic school, like that's how it went. But also I never did hot lunch once in school. I always brought lunch and I like always in my mind, I was like, oh my God, if I could ever have pizza for lunch on Fridays, like what a dream that would be. It did not happen for me. I brought like PB and J or like Sometimes my grandmother packed my lunch and she once made me like a meatball sub. And I was like, the smell of this is like, is calling attention to myself. And then she was like, don't be ashamed to be Italian. And I'm like, you're not even Italian. Like it was just a weird moment, but all to say like in school elections that I witnessed, I did not run for school election. I don't know if you did, I did but not. this is such a trope for school elections for kids to get up and be like, I'm gonna make TVs in every classroom or like I'm like promising stuff they can never deliver on. Like we're all going to New York for a class trip. And it's like, where do people come off in these school elections? But I loved his like basically ownership of like, I know this is a popularity contest at its core. So my promises don't have to be real, but I'm just gonna promise things that I know people wanna hear. And this boy, his name is Mark. He is the most popular sixth grader. He's the one who's running for class president. I just want to say, like, someone was in a mood when they wrote the little bios underneath each of the portraits because we learned that Stinger is a sixth grade boy who knows all about detention. Like, basically, Stinger has already been called, like, a pre-serial killer. Like, they're not kind to him. We learned that Ivy is Julie's best friend who loves doing gymnastics. I just want to say this, like... Why is Ivy never considered? Like, Ivy has been her ride or die for years. Why is she... She's MIA. Okay. And TJ, for some reason, is campaign manager. Like, in certain (laughs) ways, like, Julie is very traditional. She's like, I need this man to run my campaign. He has access to balloons. I'm only going to defeat Mark by pulling TJ into my team. She's like, okay, so TJ, you have no experience. Um, You don't really even understand why I'm doing this. But of course, and he kind of appoints himself campaign manager. He does. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. He's like, so basically I'll be the campaign manager. And she's like, great, wonderful. That's what I need. And I'm like, wow, this is so mirroring like real politics with adults where it's like basically a man is like, I just need to win a popularity contest. Like my promises don't matter. I never have to fulfill them. And then you have the managers asserting themselves like, I know your vision better than you do. It's just like, it's a lot. I also loved, so there's so many moments too where there's different discussions about language, right? It was kind of throwing me back to Mary Ellen's very brave befriending of an Italian student, if you recall that like profile and encourage moment. Um, Julie frowns when she sees one of the campaign posters have a stake in government? Give me a break. It's spelled S-T-A-K-E. Mellow Owl Albright, what are you going to do? Give out spelling demerits? Well, I'm not voting for someone who can't spell. And then TJ has to explain that the popular candidate, his last name is Salisbury. And Julie says, I get it, but it's dumb. Like, <laughs> Julie is so caustic and also She's so not having in parts of this book. I was worried that she wasn't going to win. I thought we were going to get Miss Victoried here and we were going to get very close, but she was going to learn that it's okay to lose. That's honestly what I thought was going to happen. Yes. And I had a personal crisis during that scene because like Amelia Bedelia, I also confused common spellings of words. So to me, I was like, 
I feel like I like Julie was hitting me where I live, where she was like, it's dumb because I both love puns and I mistake. I'm a phonetic speller. So I felt like I was being personally attacked. Like I would not make it two hours on this campaign team. Does this mean that Julie is Jimmy Carter? I think we are meant to understand that Julie equals Jimmy Carter and Matt or Steak is <laughs> Mark Gerald Salisbury. Ford. Mark Salisbury is Gerald Ford, equals Gerald Ford, who people at the time were like, we don't remember this, but people were like, Gerald Ford is hot. Like, I'm not of that camp, but Gerald Ford, when especially when he was younger, was believed to be a very, like, good-looking guy, and people said of him, like, he played too much football without a helmet. Like, people were derogatory of his intelligence in ways I think were unfair, but he was sort of like a basic man who people thought was a good person and was like non-offensive as a candidate. Like it was really hard to say what he was all about. And Jimmy Carter like had a much bigger personality. Um, it Like if you saw him speak versus Gerald Ford, like you probably wouldn't remember what Gerald Ford said. So, but you know, he was sort of like non-offensive and was like, don't worry, I'll make everything okay after Watergate. And I guess that's what Mark was sort of doing. Like I'll make everything okay with pizza. Mark also was still kind of like, the old guard, right? He's like, popularity is what wins. Yeah. And he also was like, I'll make any promise on this campaign trail. Like, I don't need a plan. People were like, so like, how are you going to make pizza the lunch op- hot lunch option on Friday? And he was like, I don't need to give you the next 10 words in that sentence. Like, that's not what this election is about. Do you feel this was a clean campaign? No, it was not. Because oh. people... They made posters, Julie and Ivy. Ivy, once again, always available to support Julie, even though she doesn't get her own storylines and she's not allowed to be present for important life events or have life events of her own. She shows up with joy and they make with glitter and all kinds of craft supplies. They make some pretty compelling Julie campaign posters. And then the next day, those are defaced. And I'm like, Mark, I see you like. He was smirking. He was like stealing Julie's campaign ideas, defacing her posters. Julie has the idea to stand by the exit of the school when kids are leaving to get on the bus and basically like shake hands. And Mark steals that idea. I'm like, Mark, what are you doing? Like, where is your campaign promise to run a clean campaign? I think the cruelest thing this author has done to us is she gives us this like tantalizing glimpse into dad when he kind of like pulls the common like, oh, he's a peanut farmer. I'm probably going to vote for Gerald Ford. Like that dad is politically active. We have learned less by about this dad by reading all six books. Yeah, he has maintained his air of mystery in ways that I am disappointed by. But I talk about never being less surprised in my life than finding out that dad was going to support Gerald Ford. I'm like, of course, this man is voting for Jerry Ford. All he looks at is like, what's your tax policy? Okay, great. Thank you. I feel like mom probably isn't voting and Hank is going to have to convince her that voting is the right thing to do. But I'm not sure. Like, I think what was like a very interesting, if unintentional commentary in this book, Julie goes from being like almost non-functional. She's in so much anguish about her family situation to completely divorcing herself from her family and no one has noticed. Like she has so many hobbies and like girl boss missions to make up for the fact that like Tracy's completely gone, the older sister, we don't hear from her. Mom is always at glad rags. Dad is like 
30,000 feet in the air, maybe, or <laughs> at a political rally, maybe. We don't really know what he's doing. Is he flying a ping pong team around again? Like, is he on some kind of covert op? Like, we really can't say. No. But I do think I can envision for mom that she looks at the Carters, which, like, just pausing for a moment that Rosalind Carter just passed. And, you know, I think that something that was incredibly appealing about the Carters was that they presented what seems like a very genuine marriage and a vision of the family that was uncomplicated at a time when, as we've said, like divorce was on the rise. And there was just a lot of, you know, unrest in the country generally, a lot of like sadness and bitterness about Watergate and Vietnam and all these other things. And in a way that Reagan will then like, you know, really leapfrog off by 1980, like Jimmy Carter was like, I'm young. I have energy, I'm in love with my wife, like no problems here. And I think the mom was probably like, this seems like a healthy marriage. I didn't have one of those. Maybe I'll never get married again because I think maybe I'm against marriage. But she's like, he seems sweet. She likes to save butterflies. I can get behind one of those things. I also, I should say, I misspoke. It's in a classroom in the conversation where David, question mark, makes the comment that his dad has noted that Jimmy is a peanut farmer, which is like, you know, the common thing that is ascribed to him. Um, And the fact that he was governor of Georgia. What do you make of Ms. slash Mrs. Duncan being called Duncan Donut? Like, my unfortunate response is I was like, I would love if someone called me, me that, too. but I don't think it was a compliment. Wow. I would I would absolutely love that. And like, I wish I had a greater association with the brand, but like, I was so jealous of that woman in that moment. I'm like, wow, imagine like being inadvertently like carrying the family name of like one of the greatest organizations in our nation's history. Wow. I know the spelling isn't right, but it's not right. It reminds me like my I saw my cousin this week and he told me he went to a fundraiser at the founder of Friendly. Sorry, this is New England core material. So if you can't appreciate it, just pause. But like Friendly's is like one of the great restaurant chains. It is now since declined. There's a handful left. It's not what it was. But the founder of Friendly's apparently spent nine million dollars to build an exact replica of Monticello in Connecticut. And I inadvertently got lost driving back to my house and just like came upon Monticello and screamed. And my cousin actually got to go inside and he was like, it doesn't look like Monticello in there. But the guys, the founder of Friendly's, he sold it, but he put into the deed that his um, ashes have to live in the house forever. Oh. So somebody pointed to a box and was like, yeah, that's him. Like at like a Christmas party and was like, that's him. But I'm just like, I don't know, like two. And I was like, wow, but imagine being associated with friendlies like that's so cool. I missed the point of the story entirely, but that's how I felt reading Miss Duncan. I was like, wow, that would be amazing. And yet I don't think that we would put her up for educator of the year. No, she's she's pretty terrible. Like this lady needs to go back to like remedial, like to do some continuing education and like figure some stuff out. She's working out what seems like other life frustrations through her classroom. Yeah, she seems extremely And maybe it is a lack of training, right? But she seems extremely frustrated with, like, basically any disturbance in the classroom. Yes. Julie has a point, right? Like, writing out the same phrase over and over is frustrating. Mm -hmm. Something I saw come up in a lot of people's reviews that they wrote about this book is whether people found Julie's overall approach to her friendship with Joy, to what we'll call her allyship with Joy... If that was presented as ultimately sort of patronizing, 
And I think something that a lot of people kind of zoomed in on was the fact that people keep referring to sign language in this book as like a secret code or like a kind of like quirky special thing as opposed to a language accommodation that is required, right, for people to communicate with this person. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think something I would have liked to have seen differently in how they presented the story was to not make Julie the hero of the situation. So like just to give you a rough sense of the plot, like Julie protests detention because she's like, it doesn't help our community if I'm like writing out, I will not pass notes a hundred times. And so what she ends up doing, like these, there are girls, the water fountain girls make a return from book one and they bully Joy in a very cruel way. And the teacher finally hears it and gives them detention. And Julie's like, what if instead of them writing, I won't bully Joy, I teach them sign language, including how to say I'm sorry. And then they go to Joy's house and apologize and sign and all become friends. So firstly, that's sort of like felt unrealistic to me that that's how this would all end. And secondly, my biggest issue is like, I feel that it would have been just as compelling to have a book named after Julie that would actually allow Joy to be the hero of that moment or to advocate for herself. Because a lot of disability activists, including including Judy Human, you mentioned earlier, like they were the ones who were protesting and calling for accommodations and change in the school themselves. Like, I think it would have been much more powerful to have Joy do that. What ends up happening is after Joy realizes that people have been mocking her and they're mocking her for her use of sign language and for her voice, she ends up going home and then she's just out sick for days. And I do think that's something that rings as very true based on what I've read about persons with disabilities in public school systems at this time that a lot of administrators, a lot of adults were basically fine to see people just drop out, to just, you know, not continue their education. I I find it striking looking back across all of these books, how few functional adults there are relative to Julie. Yeah. Like you don't actually have, like even in book one, the president, the principal just kind of throws up his hands at Julie being upset about Title IX not being applied at the school. And he ultimately supports her, but it's not like he has a vision or like is leading the way. He's sort of like docilely following behind the wishes and advocacy of a nine-year-old. And the teachers similarly just seem like really checked out or just like really passive. And even in this book, the teacher is sort of following Julie's lead. And I wonder, like, is there a way to both present a story in which a child can be at the center and be empowered while also having supportive adults who don't like do you can you only present children as powerful by taking agency or responsibility away from adults? I think the Rebecca books probably did that the best, right? That Rebecca, Mm -hmm. like when she sees her family members in various situations, she sees them being brave and people of integrity, and it doesn't take away from what she does. And I think that book probably, her saves book, probably has the best rebuke by an adult saying to a child, like, what you did was really courageous, but it also wasn't the best thing to do in this situation, Mm -hmm. which is not, not common. I, like, kind of looking back across these books, there's so many moments, right, where you're rooting for Julie. For some people, I think they find Julie a little bit grating overall, but she does have a win. Like she wins at basketball. She wins at a lot of things. And one of the, I think, more impactful moments of the book, even if it is kind of like a bit, you know, strained, 
she is taking the podium and she's able to give a rebuttal during a debate. And instead of describing her VP, she says, my vice president, Joy Jenner, is new. Because she's new, many of you haven't gotten to know her. Instead of speaking for her, I'd like to ask her to come up to the podium and speak for herself. And I think like for that time period, that would have been a pretty shocking thing for her to do. Yeah, that was a great end to this story was to actually like have Julie get out of the way and um, let Joy speak for herself. You know, again, like it would be cool if like Joy was like this book was really about Joy's perspective. I know that's not the project of this book, but I thought that was a really like for its time good ending. I also think something going on in this book, there's so many casual references to Happy Days, Little House on the Prairie, all these other things that they like. To your point earlier about the intensity of people pining for other times in the 1970s, and that was set up really well in book five with the Bicentennial. I think part of what's going on is, except for Hank, who's disappeared, the adults are so disaffected and caught up in adult problems that I think the larger arc here is that it takes Julie's kind of naive optimism to break through that and that that's supposed to be a comment on the 70s more than that like Julie is that great yeah I think I think like the response to this period is like there's such a common belief that adults are disaffected and disappointed and just checked out of the system that what's needed is sort of a resurgence of or nostalgia for a time when basically white culture believed that everyone was checked in on the system and believed in it and knew the difference between right and wrong. And actually, one of the early reviews of American Girl books was like, these books are not subtle on morality, and actually that's needed in a time when kids need to know the difference between right and wrong, especially when their parents may not know. And I think you can kind of then see that as fitting perfectly with things like Happy Days, Little House on the Prairie, What are some other like the 50s nostalgia from that time, where it's like a very clear moral at the end of the episode, you know, it makes you feel good. And and this is like part of a larger turn in the 70s to of people just like trying to process what's going on. And and some people process it by returning to a sense of perceived innocence. Like in our own times, you might even look at like the Gilded Age and the Buccaneers and these shows that are like romanticizing the Gilded Age as also like a presentation of an escape people can take now to a time that was not simpler by any means, but sort of allows you to escape from the problems of our own world. The way that this is summarized in The Peak into the Past is it says, television shows set in the 50s, like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, which look back at America's recent past as a simpler and happier time, were hugely popular. And then the next point they make is that, but people actually on the whole didn't want to live in those time periods. They wanted to kind of vacation there. Yeah. And I mean, if you're black, do you really want to go back to 1950s in America? Like, I doubt it. I keep getting these targeted ads and I I literally I don't understand what this means. But they say something like uh, take a train ride like as if it's the 1940s. And I'm like, I I literally don't. What? I don't understand what that is supposed to mean. That's so weird. I don't know if they mean like it's narrated. I don't. I don't understand. It's a a semi-local thing, not super local to me, but it's like take a 1940s-style train ride. Oh, like in Newport or something? No. Oh. Uh, So Hmm. I I don't... It's not like a themed, costumed interpretation. I'm like, I don't... 
anything yeah, that's weird before sweeping civil rights legislation that protects persons with disabilities and you know people of different racial classes like not a great framework for travel like yeah. tourism I mean, yeah. What's interesting, you bring up the, the way it's described in Peek into the Past. I thought what would have actually been cool in Peek into the Past is if they talked about music, because mm. that's where you see more of a complicated response to the disaffected feeling people had in the 70s. Like, they're right to bring up happy days and nostalgia. But if they talked about music, it they would have also noted that disco and punk were born at the same time in sure. this moment. And they're really different responses to the same feeling. One of them is the world's melting and everyone's mad, so let's just dance. Um, and like the disco becomes a space where you can be someone else and like the rules don't apply and all this other stuff. Or punk, which is like the world's melting and I'm just gonna scream about it. You know, same response, different responses to the same phenomenon. And I just wonder like, we're reading a mystery book now where Julie's going to be going to a disco. And I'm like, it would have been really cool if disco came into these books. Cause I actually think it would have offered, you know, just like an interesting, like further level to all of this. Yeah. To see where Julie is at around 16 or 17, like we got a preview yeah. through her older sister, but not quite through her. And I feel like there was kind of uh, an implication, right? When they have little house on the prairie on TV and older sister Tracy says something like, I thought you just liked the books, you know, but you kind of get a sense that maybe she has a crush on Charles, which is like, I think, a motivating factor. Relatable. Yeah, fine. If, if you've never seen that show, and obviously there are problems with it, but they told the whole cast, this is my assumption, like, wear hair that will track with audiences for the 70s, but just pretend that that's realistic for settling and like colonizing the american west and landed and others were like got it yeah they were like it's almost like a feeling that the actors were like i will wear historic costumes i will not cut my hair no like how dare you and michael Landon was like i would never ask that of you have you seen my hair it's feathered like, that's the vibe it's feathered it's like everyone has a 70s haircut it's amazing there was recently a video that was surfacing and it was like 20 minutes that will like scramble or 20 clips from Little House on the Prairie that will scramble your DNA. I was like, I didn't remember the Ooh. show being quite this extreme. I had to turn it off because I just was like, it the Albert stuff. It was Albert. And I, I did remember that quite well. They they talk about cocaine on that show. I think what's telling right is in the same way that Little House on the Prairie was trying to give a certain audience like a bomb to get through the 1970s by reimagining like the way that the West was conquered. I kept thinking about this book and the fact that I would have read this book very differently before 2016 or before 2008, right? I, I would have right. read this book like thinking about how seriously this peek into the past takes the fact that anyone can be president I, th I think is like very mm. challenging to read right now and it's thinking upsetting. about part of the legacy of Jimmy Carter being the Camp David Peace Accords, right? And thinking about like what right. was extremely important to not just Jimmy Carter, but Rosalind Carter, mental health, right? The expansion of public re recreation, dealing with green energy. They implemented a number of green energy measures that were, were really not seen historically 
and thinking about where we are today, it's really sobering, right? Like I don't, I, I hope people are writing books that are this hopeful for kids now because I think our, our world yeah. has already shifted a lot since 2007. It made me feel like reading this book that I have become the disaffected parents in the 70s. And what's needed is like kids today to have a, a sense of hope. Somebody I work, I work at a college and a college student did say to me yesterday, I was like, what do you think about Taylor Swift being time person of the year? And they were like, don't take this the wrong way um, because it does apply to you. And I was like, oh God. And they were like, her Instagram post about it was just like so millennial cringe. I was just like, wow, you're such a millennial. Like you're, that's so embarrassing. And she was like, you are also embarrassing in that way. And I was like, in what way am I an embarrassing millennial? And she was like, remember that one time you said something positive about Cheesecake Factory? And I'm like, what? what's wrong with loving Cheesecake Factory? Nothing. But I was just like, wow, this is stunning. I was shocked into silence, but I was like, wow, I guess that's where I'm at in my life right now. But I think if you look at a lot of the style choices of people who are 10 to 15 years younger than we are, right, who are in the generation behind us chronologically, their adoption of the 90s, I think, is an exact repetition of what you're seeing of people in the 70s worshiping the 50s. Right, exactly. The, the fact that Julie has a crush on the Fonz, right, has a direct, like, which doesn't, like, make sense on a certain level or the fact that... Or any level, yeah. No, I mean, but, yeah. Like, Julie and Tracy are kind of, like, joking about, like, you know, pining for this certain kind of man on the television while dad is completely missing in action. Dad's missing in action. Like, I could see Julie, like, loving Greece and just being like, oh, my God, like, Danny Zuko, so hot, like, 50s culture, whatever. But, I mean, it's just, it's a lot. It, it's very... Yeah, I think that is what's going on. The 90s nostalgia is really like sending me sometimes, especially the stuff around Friends, because I'm not the hugest like fan of Friends and I just don't think it has aged particularly well. And there's a part of me that's like, I hope that Gen Z and its nostalgia for Friends doesn't take on like its homophobia, like or miss like the parts of those eras that is not something we want to take into the present in the same way that like the 50s certainly had their problems as well. I see clips of friends all the time and especially around the, you know, unfortunate passing of Matthew Perry. Mm -hmm. I did a big rewatch of it at least 10 years ago. And by the end, I it just it was never my comfort show. I was like, I can't believe how repetitive this is. Right. If you are accustomed to watching network sitcoms, that's what I think is so interesting about younger people really loving it. It's very different from the TV that they watch on Netflix. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like they're comforted by the formulaic nature of it in a sure. way that we're put off by because to us it seems so like normy. But yeah, I think that's a definitely good point. And if you're looking for a half hour sitcom to make you feel good at the end of the day, like try Living Single if you've never watched it because it's a great show from the same period. Now, I'm sure like, I'm sure Julie, right? Like Julie had friends on in the background when she's having like a, a weird like 90s consciousness raising group at her house in Berkeley. That sounds great. Would you vote for her? Yes, I would. Ultimately. For president. POTUS. Wow. Yes, I would, but I would probably need to have a sit down with her and just be like, I really need brass tacks. Like, what's going on with you? I think that she would be 
like pointed, like the fact that she questions the detention system. I really like that. I'm curious about the choice to elevate Joy when Ivy has been so loyal. Like, are there other plans for Ivy? I'm not sure what's going on there. I would have questions about that. Like, why is Ivy reduced here to a person who loves gymnastics? Nothing against gymnastics, but like, Ivy is like a brilliant friend. She's a very good friend. Why did we cast her aside so quickly? There, I just oh different schools. Oh, okay, that's my error. That well, was- different schools, but I think like in a bigger way, what's a challenge with these books is like the side best friend character is never supposed to be as compelling as the main character because they don't want to pull focus. And yet, I think the Julie books, like what you're pointing to, is like the main side character friends that we've met, like Ivy and Joy are in some cases more interesting than Julie. And they kind of like don't thread the needle as well of like not making you pull focus from Julie. Like I've several times in these books been like, I want to stay with Ivy and like see what's going on. And the same with Joy. Like I would love a book with Joy at the center. In more ways than one. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, we're taking a mystery adventure. The mysteries have been highly hyped by all of you so i hope that the julie mysteries are very good i suspect that mom and dad will never reconcile i don't see that coming i wish i knew more about tracy's future and like bug stuffing i feel like tracy goes one of two ways like after reading these books i feel like post the election of reagan she either becomes a hyper liberal and like hides in vermont or she becomes a wall street tycoon I'm afraid it's going to be the latter if for no other reason than her exposure to tennis culture might send her further into like the prep handbook when that comes out in a few years. So, I mean, we'll see. I would love to know what happens with Tracy and I would love like fan fiction to that effect. But like, I don't know what's going to happen with Julie 10 years. And I think we have a better sense of Tracy probably than Julie. She's definitely involved in some activism on campus and You know, shout out for people in this book, like they raise the controversial fact that Carter wanted to pardon people who, you know, protested their drafting into the war in Vietnam. This book stuffs a lot of important historical tidbits in a way that I think is very subtle and very hard to do. I agree. Yeah, I think it I think it does a good job of like trying to capture a decade that just had a lot going on and, you know, a lot of nuances like all periods in history, but I think it did a pretty good job, at least gesturing towards a lot of that stuff. I'd say I'll miss Julie, but we have more Julie. We have more Julie coming your way. We're going to be talking about, wait, what are we doing? The Puzzle of the Paper Daughter, a Julie mystery. Yes, I'm very excited to read that for our next episode. And we'll have some other Julie content after that. And um, on our Patreon this month, we'll be covering Britney Spears' memoir. So if you want to join that conversation, please find us on Patreon. And uh, we'll have some other watch-alongs and things coming up. Allison, if people want to contact you or contact the show, what's the best way to get in touch? I'm at Allison Horrocks on pretty much all the platforms. You can find me pretty easily on Instagram at Allison Horrocks. And my DMs are open. Wonderful. And you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I love hearing from folks. It's been so heartwarming to hear from people reading our book and just want to say thanks again to everyone who's checked it out and, and, you know, shared it. I love seeing it in bookstores and people send us photos. So please, you know, 
you know, keep doing that. Keep telling us uh, if you're enjoying it. And just thanks to everyone who's continued to support our show. We so appreciate you. And we'll see you on our next episode. Thank you.